Welcome back to Forming Function. I'm Sam. And I'm Brian. All right, starting us right off the top this time, we are drinking the Freedom Blend from Percari Chateau. This is a dry red wine made in Moldova. It was first made in 2014 with uh, indigenous grape varieties that are native to Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. Originally made to... I lost it. Spice up your life. (laughs) (laughs) That also, but made to um, fight back against uh, military aggression in Eastern Europe, notably Crimea and the Ukraine region. And obviously that's still very relevant today uh, in Ukraine. And so I believe some of the proceeds of this wine go to helping with everything that's going on there. But it's also just a tribute to the people there and their free spirit and uh, to their freedom. And it's pretty good. Yeah. The artwork on the label is very, it's gorgeous. Yeah, we've got this ripped paper art that reveals the Ukraine flag on the inside. Really well balanced. I recommend it. Yeah. Support Ukraine. Putin can go chew on nails. <laughs> Putin can do do any PG-13 thing that... <laughs> All right, Sam, uh, the question I have for you today is, where does design happen? Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, I feel like when I was thinking about my response to this question in general, I was... I was looking actually out the window at the office. So I was looking at all of like the buildings and stuff around uh, like Midtown. And I was kind of thinking that design happens. I want to say like out in the world, but I think it's kind of like it happens in open spaces and in time kind of because i was looking at a lot of you know there were like commercial and public facing buildings and i feel like when something is designed initially it's you know if it's designed at first it's usually like with a small team of people or possibly one person but once that design is actually executed and delivered and put to use then people's feedback comes into play and then maybe the same designer or maybe other designers then approach a design saying they can improve it to make it work better for people so it's kind of abstract my answer i don't know if that's anything well i think that's a great answer in terms of what we're going to talk about today because it talks about design teams and i like your analogy of being out in the world Mm -hmm. because this question of where does design happen was the same question that was being posed by businesses in post-war America during the early 1940s. Along with a strong economy and giant growth of the industrial sector, there was this desire to decentralize operations. And it started on the path to creating the first corporate campuses, Mm. uh, which is like an architectural typology that we still see being built to some degree today. And probably some of our listeners even work at a corporate campus um, type place that they work at like the headquarters for a building or a design center. But um, that wasn't always the norm. Right. So if we go to the beginning, up until this point in the 40s, design and decisions about products typically typically happened at one of two places. Um, 
I think the obvious example is the tall, iconic corporate headquarters that would be located in a downtown business district of a mm-hmm. city. So that calls to mind early 1900s neo-gothic or art deco skyscrapers like the Chrysler building. That's exactly, exactly my brain. Yeah, yeah. I went right there. Yeah, that's definitely the most obvious one. But like, there's also Woolworth Building or the Bank of Manhattan Trust in New York, or there's the um, Chicago Tribune Tower or Carbon and Carbide Building in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And if any of our listeners haven't um, doesn't know the, those buildings by names, if you've been to those cities, you'll probably recognize them if you were to see what they would look what they look like. Right, and just Google them, and you'll be like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah." And those are meant to be corporate headquarters that displayed the power of the institution that built them. And they were conveniently located at the central business business district to be close to financial institutions like banks, marketing Mm -hmm. firms, other expert consultants. And all in one structure. Yeah. You were, you were close to everybody. It made business easy. That makes sense to me. So now I'm, I'm very curious as to how corporate campus became more, uh, ideal well i think it gets a little more obvious with the second one and get guess what do you think the second location that design decisions were happening mostly up until the 40s uh garages (laughs) that's that's not a bad guess (laughs) i mean i'm sure that was true but like at the corporate level uh the second main location would be at the factories themselves okay so that management was near the production center like for their company and I think like in the Detroit area, like where we're located, that was especially apparent. Um, you can see it in some of the earliest Ford plants that are still standing around the city. They'd have this administrative building typically that would be built out, built out of brick, be a little bit nicer, have a little bit of ornamentation. And then the massive concrete structure production facility would be behind that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, or some other prominent examples are like General Electric's factory in New York or Thomas Edison's labs. Like the ones that are now at Greenfield Village. Yeah. Uh, Sweet. Those historic labs that, you know, that was where they did the inventing. And yeah, yeah. those are pretty cool. If, if you haven't seen them, people listening, they're awesome. If you go to Greenfield Village, Menlo Park is open for business. And no longer in Menlo Park. And no longer in Menlo Park. Uh, yeah. But like, so like they had their offices there so they could interact and be part of the process. Yeah. Okay. And so with that one, it's easy to see why employees up the corporate chain might want to leave, right? Like it at first it was appealing to be near these bastions of progress, Mm -hmm. but they became smoggy, polluted, cramped, and they were associated with the manual labor of the working class rather than innovation. Yeah. And I'll say too, like when you were first talking about, you know, oh, design happens at the factory, I'm thinking that that sounds so collaborative, like, you know, Joe over on the assembly line realizes that there's like a better design way and it's very uh, well received and it's an open door policy. But from what I know of uh, of corporate culture back then, I mean, even to an extent today, but uh, I don't think it was so much. Yeah, like you can just. I don't know, come come in with your ideas and they all have equal value kind of thing. Like, you know. Well, and not just that, but just like the terms of space too. like as corporations were growing, these research and development teams were becoming, you know, huge. And if you're at the factory, like 
you're just trying to occupy multiple floors of a building that's meant to be in a factory setting mm -hmm. or like if you're trying to do sensitive work like electronics companies we're, we're doing at this time that noise those vibrations that smog it's, it's not helping with the experimentation that they're doing either interesting okay so it's just not really a functional like um partnership that was working spatially um and the city's had kind of that same problem um lost my spot oh in terms of like the you know density the congestion but beyond that like from the 40s through the 60s downtown areas were being seen as deteriorating um, vacancies were rising there was a more diverse population that was coming into the middle class and you know racism like went along with that i was gonna say that. let's just say it say what it is white flight oh definitely yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, there just wasn't room to grow. Um, and nor was there security either. So if you're working on things that were proprietary or sensitive, mm -hmm. you can't really protect that in, in an urban environment. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying with that. And, and actually, here's a funny one. During the Cold War, the federal government even pressed to decentralize out of dense areas as a nuclear deterrent. Oh. They were like, the only defense against an atomic bomb is to spread out. So it was like viewed as a patriotic thing. <laughs> I guess I see where they're going with that, but like they're just encouraging our enemies to make more bombs is how <laughs> I would take that. I don't think that was a major pressure, but I, I thought it was funny that that was something that I, I kept finding come up. America will propagandize anything. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't just like the geography or like location either. There was also a decentralization happening with business structures at that time. So. Um, at that time, there was a system called managerial hierarchy, and one of the main creators of that system was Alfred P. Sloan, the president of General Motors. Oh. And we'll be hearing about GM a lot in this episode. But basically, like, he essentially invented, like, this system of managerial corporate structure. Okay. So under this system, the centralized top company staff made decisions on broad strategic direction and finances. Mm-hmm. But different divisions were separated and run by managers who would report their way up the chain. So, for example, manufacturing divisions were given autonomy that allowed them to innovate and research new products on their own, um, which was not what happened before that point. Okay. Um, typically, like, you know, I assume the top people made all the decisions or, you know, businesses were run differently. So, yeah, it makes sense that he would say, okay, like, this is the big picture, act within that. So if you really hate your manager, blame Alfred P. Sloan. Or them as a person, but <laughs> scapegoats are great. Yeah. Um, so under this new system, engineers and scientists and designers became this new class of employee. They weren't unskilled manual laborers working the factory line, but they also were not business corporate higher ups. So they were kind of in this managerial position themselves with the type of work they were doing. And this change allowed for research and design divisions to be broken off from the factory or business districts and to their own separate campuses as a way to spur more innovation. Okay. That sounds like a nice sweet spot to me because it's like, I don't want to do manual labor, but I also don't want to be in charge of anything. Middle management, baby. <laughs> Ah, uh, the sweet spot. Yes. <laughs> so the the very first corporate campus that was ever built 
was the AT&T Bell Telephone Labs in 1942. And the lab had previously been located in downtown Manhattan, where, like I mentioned before, noise and electrical interference was making their experiments difficult. Space was tight. There was even a new railway line that was going to take out part of the building. Oh, and I would assume because that's phones, right? AT&T? Yes. Yeah. So with noise issues and stuff, if you're trying to. Phones, but also just general electronics work is what they were doing. Oh, okay. So when looking for space to relocate that facility, the suburbs were an immediate prime location because at that time, suburbs were pretty low density and there were large swaths of undeveloped land at an affordable price. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if you think of the suburbs today and how packed it is and all the homes and, you know, strip malls and everything like that wasn't there. It was there were large parts of just empty land out there for the taking. And then in a lot of cities, there were new highways being built that workers could expeditiously travel to the suburbs from the city center. So Mm -hmm. it just made it a viable option from price and efficiency. Yeah. So it was like, okay, I can, I can get in, get out. Yeah. So Bell Labs purchased 213 acres in New Jersey, about 25 miles from New York city. And uh, when word got out to the nearby town of summit, the residents got alarmed since there was not really a precedent for this kind of facility. And so Bell Labs had to really convince the residents that this wasn't a manufacturing facility that was moving in. Uh, They stressed um, in order to convince and win the residents over that this development would have wide landscapes, low buildings that were three stories or less, an artistic architectural design, and that it would be staffed by engineers and scientists who matched the status of residents that lived there locally. And uh, to really sell it, they said that this would be designed to act like a smaller version of a university. Interesting. Yeah. No, no low class schmoes infiltrating your town. <laughs> yeah. But I like, mean, whatever is the time. I mean, these people left the city to, to go to this, you know, mm-hmm. less dense. They, they wanted to get away from this and now it's getting built there. So, you know, I think we, we obviously know and have opinions about what they were thinking, but I think to give them a little bit of credit, we know what they were afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. No credit. Industry. (laughs) (laughs) And so not only did that help win the city over, but it was a way to attract talent, too. At this time, uh, these types of workers saw more glory pursuing the works of academia. Mm -hmm. At the turn of the century, engineering and science started to require a higher level of knowledge. These people had graduate and doctoral degrees, and doing research at colleges and universities was seen as more prestigious than commercial or industrial work. So a new complex needed to offer perks, provide top-of-the-line facilities tailored to research, mm-hmm. and even try to simulate the atmosphere of the university in order to coax this new breed of worker into corporate life and buy into the idea of science for profit. Mm, science for profit. And so uh, inspired by all of that and the, the direction they had been given, the architect, Voorhees, Walker, Foley, and Smith, designed a quadrangle of four buildings around a central square, much like a university. Uh, Although as the project evolved, this became a larger interconnected building instead. And so at the completed site, you would approach on this long driveway lined with groves of trees uh, from the main road towards the campus. You'd peel off on the side to a large parking lot. The driveway would continue around the entire campus, wrapping it with multiple access points to the buildings. 
There was a rolling lawn that followed the contours of the hills to the surrounding forest at the perimeter of the site. Three-story modernist buildings clad in Princeton stone with copper roofs wrapped around an interior courtyard to maximize views to the outside. You make it sound lovely. <laughs> you should write their brochure. Well, it was at the time. Like, and this was like the publicity, like, ate this up. Like, they celebrated the functionalism along with the quiet country location, like, as a pleasant place to work. Um, and this complex contains all the har- hallmarks of a corporate campus, as defined by Louise Mozingo in her book, Pastoral Capitalism, which is the seminal resource on corporate campuses. Interesting. So she defines a corporate campus as, quote, office and laboratory facilities focused around a central green quadrangle surrounded by parking and an enclosing driveway modeled on the American University campus for a singular division of middle management research, end quote. So you heard it here. If you're at a corporate campus, you're probably middle management. <laughs> and well, you got to check off those boxes to make sure like it fair enough go yeah. on with your clipboard and be like, all right, there's the there's quadrangle. The, there's that driveway that wraps around. There's the grove of trees, the yeah. rolling hills, the sunshine, the birds singing. This must be a corporate campus. Oh, wait, five story buildings. I'm not middle management. Oh, yeah, that's the line. Can't go over that line. Yeah, well, there's, we'll, we'll get to that later. There's, oh, mm. you know, evolution since then. Oh, okay. They've relaxed on the rules. Yeah, yeah. Got it. <laughs> um, but Bell Labs would go on to produce inventions like the transistor and the bit. What's the bit? Like the bit, like the piece of memory that lets oh, computers work. The so, bit. so not just telephones, like they were doing lots of, you know, notable electronics work there and they would change the face of electronic innovation well thanks at&t or tiktok (laughs) thank you for tiktok yeah (laughs) thank you for what would eventually (laughs) allow me to scroll for hours when i'm supposed to be asleep thank you bell labs and the corporate campus for bringing us tiktok (laughs) thank you for your service yeah um it's still open today actually it's known as nokia bell labs now these days okay but it was a, a really highly successful project and all that publicity inspired others to follow. So after that, there were two other companies that opened suburban research centers in the 40s that really played into the uh, the corporate campus aspect. Um, GE's Electronics Park and Johns Mansville both opened campuses. But the next one after that is the campus that really solidified the corporate campus as a type of architecture that caught on, and that was the General Motors Technical Center or as we call it in the area around Detroit, the GM Tech Center. In Warren? Yeah. Whoa. 20 minutes from where we are recording right now. Just kidding. I knew that. I feel like everybody's been there. (laughs) Everybody we know. (laughs) Everybody we know. know. Yes. What is it? It's like like 60% of people, at least in Metro Detroit or something, is related to someone who works in the auto industry like i believe it yeah manufacturing maybe i'm making that up but i feel like it's, it's real it sounds true we'll we'll fact check it in post and see if we need to cut that or not no you know what we're <laughs> gonna keep it okay believe it <laughs> believe it <laughs> uh so in the mid 40s alfred p sloan he's back again president of gm who invented don't call it a comeback he never left <laughs> 
No, that was great. Um, the guy that invented <laughs> managerial capitalism, along with Charles Kettering, the director of GM Labs, they started to plan out a physically decentralized technical center on the outskirts of their headquarters in Detroit. There was land available around their proving grounds, but it was deemed to be too far away. So they bought some land in Warren. When that- you say proving grounds, you mean Milford. Yes. Okay. Which for our listeners is maybe about an hour outside of Detroit, maybe more at that time before the freeways were put in. So Yeah. Yeah. Because we, yes, I think that's about right. The advantage of the land in Warren was, quote, that it was 35 minutes by Cadillac. Because they produced, of course, they, they had to the say Cadillac, they yeah. had to say it in in units of Cadillac. Yeah, in fact, in my research, like that would come up constantly, like all these quotes that were like by Cadillac. <laughs> the amount of time it takes to assemble a Buick, this happened. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. So some of the leadership wanted GM's engineers to just design a purely functional space, mm-hmm. but Harley Earl, um, the very well known. Uh, head of styling at GM at that time, convinced Sloan that the center should be aesthetically oriented and distinctive without interfering with the center's functionality. And so GM initially hired Eliel Saarinen, a Finnish architect and the president of Cranbrook, where we took our promotional photos. Yeah, we had a very, a very nice day. To design a streamlined, futuristic campus composed of a number of separate concrete buildings that were assembled along a ring road that wrapped around a large rounded lake. Can I ask, um, what was their mindset or the the reasoning that they had for the making these campuses or at least the GM Tech Center in this case, aesthetically pleasing? Obviously, clearly function of the building was priority. And today I feel like, you know, knowing what we know about like the impact of the work environment on product productivity, all of that stuff. But like, what was their reasoning for having like a pleasant atmosphere to work in? Well, I think for the aesthetic driving of the architecture expression, mm-hmm. part of it came from in the beginning, they had to convince, you know, nearby residents like that this wasn't a factory. Okay. So, they, so it was okay. Yeah. And that early one um, for Bell Labs was, um, it was a modernist building, but really early modernism. I mean, this was the mm-hmm. early 40s. So um, it was really more kind of a more minimalistic take on a classical building. Like it used the Princeton stone, which is used in the buildings at Princeton. Yeah. So it was like clad in stone, like copper roofs. It was still like a mix of like simple modern form, but with traditional materials. And so mm-hmm. I guess that one that that one I didn't really question because you had made mention of them trying to appeal to the the local public of this isn't going to ruin your suburban experience whatever and it's going to look like a college campus kind of thing but i feel like the tech center is not that at all <laughs> yeah so i think i mean there's two parts right the one of the main components of the corporate campus is how wide open in the landscape mm-hmm. and there are photos of like people in suits and ties like out enjoying you know, the being out by the pond and like mm-hmm. the landscaping on their day. And I think that there was like this idea that there was this kind of inspiration that would come from this and this reprieve from, you know, the industrial or urban realities that would help aid in innovation and creativity. Okay. Okay. And I think what you're asking is a little bit more about the more minimalistic 
um, look of the buildings there. And I'll, I'll get into the specifics of it a little bit more later, but I think at the beginning when they started talking about this project, what was important was that Harley Earl saw this as a design center. Like this is where the people would be that would design the vehicles. And so he thought that the building should reflect the art that he saw happening in their process. Okay. If they're I designing a purely bland engineering functional building, then they might get bland functional engineered vehicles. That and, makes and total he sense. wanted, you know, this beautiful place to inspire beautiful work. I feel ya. Sloan, right? Uh Harley Earl was the head of styling. That's what I meant. He convinced I, I feel you, Harley Earl. And while we're sidetracked already, this <laughs> other interesting thing. So they, they hired Eliel Saarinen, um, the Finnish architect. I mentioned earlier the Chicago Tribune Tower is one of those um, central downtown like symbols of you know corporate uh, establishment. The way that Eliel came to the U.S., so it's this neo-Gothic building, mm-hmm. if you've seen it, in Chicago. He actually came in second place with his entry, which was a modernist building. It was actually more well-received in terms of like uh, critique than the, the winning project. And he used his money, his prize winnings from coming in second place to move to the U.S. and oh. establish himself here. Wow. Thanks, Chicago. So that building that, you know, was one of the examples of why people were leaving the city um, or well, at least, you know, an example of. You know, the corporate center in the city yeah. is what brought Aliel to the United States to begin with to practice architecture here. The circle of life. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah. So that project broke ground in 1945, but it was put on hold a year later because there were steel shortages and there was a large strike that led to significant demands from the UAW labor union that really kind of um, had GM pulling back on their finances. A couple of years later, though, the project started to gain momentum again. But by that time, Aliel's health had significantly declined. His son, Arrow, Arrow Saarinen, had recently moved back to Detroit and become a partner in the firm and was trusted to carry the project forward as the lead designer with Smith, Henchman, and Grills as the architect of record. And this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Arrow was an untested and relatively unknown architect who was just handed a commission for one of the largest architectural projects in the country at that time. This was his first solo project. No press. Yeah. So he immediately jumped in with his own design vision on the tech center. He enlarged the lake three times larger with a rectangular shape. He brought the buildings closer together. He changed the material palette um, from concrete to metal and glass because he wanted the buildings to relate to the same materials as the automobile. Okay. So that's kind of how they got to the way that they look now. So there were five major buildings with low profiles and rectangular forms that alternated on their surfaces between glass walls and would round the corners to colorful glazed brick. Mm-hmm. The site contained clear vistas with groupings of trees, especially like with the a forest at the perimeter. The lake contains this shimmering steel water tower that looks very retro and mid-century modern and a fountain that was designed by the artist Alexander Calder. You're we, looking at me like I should know that name. Uh, Calder is the one who invented mobiles, like the oh, structural cantilevered. Shit, yeah. yeah. So that's what he's really well known for. But yeah, he designed the fountain there, which is Dang. pretty cool. And none of the paths there terminate in any focal points. So like you're not traveling towards a node. The idea is that the site was meant to be best viewed 
from the window of a moving car, probably from the window of a moving Cadillac. (laughs) Right. You can only measure these things in units of Cadillac. Yeah. You're not looking down the road at a node. You're looking around you as you as you drive and taking in the landscape. Okay. And so that entire complex is a mid-century modern gem that was influenced by the Illinois Institute of Technology campus by Mies van der Rohe, uh, which is a famous international style minimalist college campus with a lot of um, use of steel, painted black, all glass walls. And it was that kind of concept blended with the next step in American factories design uh, inspired by factories designed by Albert Kahn, who's very well known in the Detroit area for designing all sorts of styles of buildings and really evolving um, what what factories looked like and how they worked. Mm-hmm. So that style of campus is seen by many architectural historians as the first example of an American interpretation of the stark minimalist international style. And it's been called an industrial Versailles. And the modernist aesthetic would go on to be an influence for many other American companies. And it really highlighted for a lot of those companies what a modern corporate setting should look like. I just want to take a moment to appreciate the phrase modernist Versailles. That really paints a picture. But I can see it, like having been to Versailles, like you come from the palace, the glass windows overlook the grounds, you can see the fountains, yeah. you can see the trees. It's the same thing. You've got these large glass walls that you can see the the pond, it's- the artist design fountain, like these other trees and water towers and vertical elements. Yeah. Certainly not the same thing, but you can you can see where they're coming from. I haven't been to either, but I have a very specific possibly incorrect picture (laughs) of what they would look like one of them is definitely more beautiful than the other but the elements are there and you can you can see how the pieces would come together you really like the tech center huh (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) um i i'll talk more about the tech center in in a few minutes but um that's really where the story begins for corporate campuses and things kind of take off from there and there's decades of in between but i think there's a few key paths that connect the dots from those beginnings to where we've landed today. And there's kind of two different threads. So in terms of the general evolution of the corporate campus, there were a couple like evolving trends that happened over the years. So Luis Mozingo again describes that in the 50s, the corporate estate was the next step forward, which would be where you'd have a single large signature building located at the end of a long drive surrounded by a large open scenic landscape so kind of like a downtown skyscraper but in the middle of nowhere maybe not quite a skyscraper but yeah a large signature building it's meant to be beautiful it's meant to make a statement but it is surrounded by this landscape so the idea of the environment around it is supposed to make a statement as much as the building itself okay that they have all this space to spread out like it's a, it's a meant to be a, a different kind of power move reacting to what happened decades before. Right. We're not phallic. Now we're man spreading. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it would serve as an alternative to those downtown headquarters for executive staff. And um, it started with General Foods. And then some other notable examples would be Deer and Company's Administrative Center, or Aero Saarinen would design the Homedale complex for Bell Labs in the 50s. 
or locally, the Domino Pizza headquarters is a pretty good example. Okay, that you've probably yeah. Probably seen. I sure have. I love um, Domino's. Surrounded by you know farmland and. and a, don't they, yeah, Domino Farms. They have like a petting zoo, don't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. So it's like that iconic building in the landscape, and you know you can see it. Forming function field trip. Let's go pet some goats. <laughs> I'm down for that. <laughs> goats as the guest speaker. <laughs> I love it. Do you do a goat impression? Like, what would that sound like? Bah. Ah. I think that's what sheep sound like. Oh, how do goats sound? Don't they scream like there's ah! like Taylor Swift? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what they I sound like. I can do a really good physical goat impression, <laughs> not so much verbally. Yeah, let's not get into that one. But it's really good. My, my loss. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then after that, in the late 50s, capitalistic developers grabbed hold of the concept and offered their own response with the suburban office park. So those would be groups of buildings that contain offices for multiple companies enclosed with parking lots. Okay. And it serves as a cheaper, leasable alternative to the corporate campus. And that's still like a big template for office space holding managerial positions in America and worldwide mm-hmm. today. And probably a lot of our listeners actually work more likely in these office parks than a corporate campus. Um, Or if not, you can imagine, you know, your favorite moment from the office, which is kind of set in an office park setting. Yeah. The five families. Five families. I probably can't name all of them. But yeah, the so it's Dunder Mifflin, Vans Refrigeration, and then there's like three other companies that are in the office park. And they call them the three families like it's the mafia or something i never would have thought that the office would help us get to an educational point but that's actually an excellent example because it illustrates the (laughs) idea that this was not meant to be a campus for one company but you know these developments were meant to be a smaller version of the campus for many companies that would share the space together look at me and my half-baked office (laughs) information (laughs) helping us learn and then the other trail off um to today, probably like the the better <laughs> the better end result uh, would be when that campus concept went to the West Coast in the late fifties, when defense and electronics companies in California started following suit. I was waiting to hear about Silicon Valley. Yeah, because this set the stage for, if I just skip decades of history, like the latest high profile examples of this going on, mm-hmm. like this type of construction and design. Uh, for tech companies to set themselves apart. The two that jump to mind for me are Apple and Facebook, and they both have a little bit of an interesting twist on the whole campus concept. So, so okay. Apple Park, designed by Sir Norman Foster, it's this giant, sleek, multi-story ring with like these circular, like fins that wrap around the circular form, and like every floor has like huge, vast expanses of windows. But the park is actually on the inside. It encloses a giant 30-acre park within Norman, the ring. Norman, what were you doing? So instead of the l- landscape being around, it's, you know, the building is around the landscape. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, or the Facebook campus in Menlo Park by Frank Gehry is this long... Not the Greenfield Village Menlo Park. No, this is in California, uh, in the Bay Area. And it's not historic. No, but it's this long horizontal jagged structure and it's not located in a landscape it's 
just located in the middle of a suburb, um, but it actually has a landscaped park that occupies the entire roof of the building. Oh. So I don't know that Louise would define this as a corporate campus, but I think it's, you know, the next step that kind of takes an innovation and a twist on it. and Loosen up, Louise. Come on. The, I, I'm not, I don't want to put words in her mouth, uh, to be fair, but, you know, this doesn't fit any of the definitions she's given us, but I think certainly they would consider it to be a kind of corporate campus and it's kind of taking this new evolution of what does the landscape mean? Like when it's when the roof of your building is the landscape of this gigantic complex. I think it counts. Yeah, I mean, it provides a lot of the same amenities. So it might not be quite the same, but it certainly is trying to accomplish the same end goals. Yeah. And so seven decades later, that model for corporate business hierarchy and corporate campus space has endured. It's spread across the country and across the world as a model for business. And although the idealistic origins of those sites might have given way across the years to speculation and dumbed down versions in a lot of cases, that ideology has remained that open green space is good for employees and it's good for business. Sure. I believe them. Sort of. It's still work. You still have to leave your house and put on pants, shower, look presentable, talk to people. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing from a couple sources, though, is like you can't really define the benefit that has come from right. typology. Like it's hard to say, like, has this generated X number of dollars for companies or anything? But, you know, clearly there's this belief that it's helping. It's doing good because it's still sought after today. Yeah, I don't know if it's quantifiable, but there is a clear benefit in having a space that your employees at least don't mind coming into on a regular basis and spending most of their waking hours. And companies have expanded on that too with different kinds of perks like free food and coffee. And I don't know, I used to work someplace where we did, we, we got free yoga classes and whatnot. So I, I feel like they're just continuing to like double down on that. Yeah. And, and like, what's the next idea of what benefits our employees should have? Work from home. <laughs> if there's any subliminal messaging going on in this podcast. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, I had a cough. Work from home. <laughs> this will be part one of the story. Uh, join us for our next episode to get part two on corporate campuses. If there's a design, item, or place you want us to dive into and explore the story of, send it our way at formingfunctionpodcast.com. Be sure to keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Forming Function Podcast. Forming Function is produced by Brian Moore and Sam Malat-Brown, with audio mixing and editing by Jeffrey Brown. Our theme music is by Paul Corsi, with music recording and editing by Aaron Moore. If you want to read more about corporate campuses, check out Louise Monzingo's book, Pastoral Capitalism. I use that for a lot of information in this podcast, and it really dives a lot deeper into the campus, especially from the standpoint of landscape architecture and the landscape, if you want to hear more. Season one is sponsored in part by the Michigan Architectural Foundation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in part two. <laughs>